You are listening to Biblical Appalachia, a podcast dedicated to biblically examining church life, ministry, culture, traditions, and folklore of the Appalachian Mountains. Five seconds. As U.G. Prince delivered the last of his sermon, his son Charles pulled two large snakes from a secret drawer. Led by Sheriff Jack Arrington, deputies moved in to stop the service. Prince was immediately taken into custody, charged with two counts of snake handling and one count of obstructing a public officer. Sheriff Arrington, meanwhile, only had a matter of minutes to make it to Haywood County Hospital with a serious snake bite wound to the left hand. He was about to faint. Um, He is stable now, and um, we think he's going to be okay. They call it the Holiness Church of God in Jesus' name, an outdoor service that praises God with music and dance, fire and poison, and even snake handling, all according to what they call a show of faith based on the Bible. If God would just give me a little place right out on the outside of the earth, just a little garden, just a little garden, I'd be satisfied with that, wouldn't you? This is the same service that was busted only a month ago for illegal snake handling. Deputies were on hand early to do just the same this time. In fact, Sheriff Arrington himself unsuccessfully searched the area for any sort of poisonous reptiles. As U.G. Prince assured officers, there would be no trouble. And then I want you all to see that the other people don't interrupt. Is that all right? Yes, sir. Minutes later, Alan Williams of Tennessee was arrested. Deputies say they had warrants from that July service, but had to wait for him to come back into the county. Feelings between the law and the congregation obviously weren't any better after Arrington was bitten and a dozen snakes were confiscated. The church now claims this will be a constitutional battle. We'll see if the man has to have a search warrant or not. Tom Corbin, New Center 4. Welcome to another episode of Biblical Appalachia. My name's Nick. My name's Kyle. We are your host, and on today's episode, we are discussing snake handling churches. The clip you just heard was a uh, old news broadcast of an incident that actually happened here where we live, where there was this church that was doing an outside uh, outdoor worship service. They were handling snakes, and the sheriff's department went in to bust that up, arrest people that were there, and the sheriff himself actually ended up getting bit by one of the snakes. And that's big talk here in Haywood County. Uh, you can ask here in North Carolina, Haywood County, you can ask about anybody in this area uh, and they'll know that story. Uh, in fact, John MacArthur in his book, Charismatic Chaos, in one chapter actually begins by discussing that story. I've always thought it's great because he starts talking about in Canton, North Carolina. I'm like, man, that's where I live. That's uh, home. Yeah, that's home. Uh, so, yeah, that's what we're discussing today. Um, 
you know, it's a stereotypical thing. Uh, if you think Appalachia, if you think hillbillies, you normally think snake handling churches. Uh, that's a joke too. You'll find Christians in our area always making little jokes about that. Oh, we're going to pick up snakes today. It got the service got wild and snakes were handled. And I got to be honest though, I've never been in a snake handling worship service. I don't even know where I could find such a thing. I do know people who have been a part of snake handling churches. Um, I do know in one area in Appalachia, I will not name the location, but in one area where I was uh, doing some mission work one time, um, we were there, the church where I was pastoring, we, we had gone there to do like a short-term mission trip with some missionaries in this particular town. And there was a pastor there who was a pastor of a snake handling church. And he was angry that we were there. And I just remember him riding his four-wheeler in and his hand was all mangled from all the times he'd been bitten by snakes. So it's out there. It's there. Uh, but I've never been to a snake handling church, but I am excited to talk about it. Well, you mentioned kind of joking around about it. Uh, when we sang with uh, the little gospel group that I sang with, we always joked, if they pull out snakes, if they pull snakes out from under a pew or anything, I'm hitting the door. I'm not going to be finishing the song. We're going right. to get out of here quickly. Yeah. So I guess to start the conversation, um, why discuss this at all? Why discuss snake handling churches? Well, our worship matters. You know, what churches actually do in their worship matters. Uh, are we going to offer up strange fire like Aaron's sons did in Leviticus? Or are we going to offer up praise that that is glorifying to the Lord. So worship certainly matters, but also, um, and we'll probably end with this today, but the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures, you know, does the Bible actually teach that churches should take up snakes and, and do that in their worship services? So that's, that's why we need to discuss this. Okay. Well, just moving right on, right along. Um, Speaking of those worship services and what some of these churches are offering, what are their practices like? Can you give us a description of uh, what they provide in their worship services, what they do during their services? Yeah, from what I've read, and also there have been documentaries on the History Channel, things like that, that have shown some of this. Uh, the Foxfire books, which if you don't know what that is, that's where this professor at the University of Georgia with his students went through Southern Appalachia, uh, wrote a whole volume on, on church life in the mountains and, and talks quite a bit about um, snake handling churches. The way they describe it, the way it, you know, I've seen and from what I've read and, and watched on documentaries, it's typically a service of, you know, singing and the singing gets kind of ratcheted up people are shouting people are raising hands and then snakes are brought out and they run dance jump while they're holding on to snakes and they'll typically take the snake raise it up in the air above their head they'll kind of dance and jump with it and while people are shouting sometimes speaking in tongues uh then the preaching all that sort of stuff goes along with it it's it's an, an exciting worship service uh, in fact, let's, we've got the Foxfire book. I wanted to read some excerpts just to kind of describe what is happening. Um, for instance, um, 
over the music. Here, here's one quote from the book, and we're going to read just a couple of quotes from the actual preachers of these churches. Uh, but the observation here, you can just imagine this professor from a college and his students sitting in one of these churches and how they describe it. Um, over the music and the rhythmic clapping of a hundred pairs of hands, people begin to speak in tongues, to jerk involuntarily, to raise their arms high and cry out the name of Jesus. And if the spirit is true, if all the necessary conditions blend perfectly, suddenly a long flat box slides out from under a pew and serpents are everywhere. Uh, here's, here's another quote from one of the preachers of this particular snake handling church. If you believe that it ain't going to bite you, then you got power that gives you faith. And then the Holy Ghost just has to be there. You must have that. When I hold a serpent, I just get down and hold it right out there. Sometimes I pray, but if I get afraid or to lose my faith, I get shed of it as quick as I can. If you don't, it's dangerous. Say you got one and you lose faith. You better get shed of it or it'll bite you. Another quote. One of the members died in 40. That was a day now. And I told him not to be bringing them in. I told him not to be bringing them in because these brothers in the church had a little disagreement and were feeling good towards each other. And I said, don't bring them in. Don't need it today. And this man just brought one in over me and he took it in and took it out. And this other boy got it and had it and just looking back over the crowd and it bit him. That was on Sunday and he lived till Friday doctor come and told him he wouldn't let him let the doctor have him that's the only one we ever had so you've got from the accounts of these guys it's about their faith if they have a strong faith the spirit of god is moving they can take up these snakes and not be bit or if they're bit they live and they even admit that there are people that get bit and some that even die because of a lack of faith so is this something that is this something that's encouraged on the members of the church? Hypothetically, if you go and participate in one of these services, is it going to be the leaders of the church that are that are doing this? Or are they inviting others to do the same? Yes and yes. Yes and yes. Yeah, I think the uh, the leaders of the church, the, the pastor is probably going to lead in that. He'll be the one to bring out the snakes. Others will do. I, from what I've read, I don't think it's like required. I don't think they expect everybody in their church to start picking up snakes. Uh, but those who do, you know, they, they warn that, as you just read, and, and I've read other accounts, more modern accounts, where they'll say, yeah, if there's sin in your life, don't do it. If you're in disunity with a brother or sister in Christ, don't do it uh, because of that danger of being bit. Yeah. So the handling of it is an outward show of faith and what holiness in your life. I assume so. Proximity yes. to God. Yeah. If you are right, if you're living correctly, if you're living according to the word of God and you have faith, you won't be bitten. That's right. Yeah. So is this a, is it, is it symbolics? Like we would say, uh, the, uh, communion, we take communion. We also would, would, uh, table that we would uh, put requirements around that and say if there is habitual sin in your life or if there's you know a glaring uh, obvious rebellious part of your life we would you know we would advise you biblically not to take communion um, and this is a but communion is a, a show of our faith and an observ observance of uh, um, 
reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. Is it is it similar to them? Do they uh, where do they rank? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I get what you're asking. I don't think that they view snake handling as a sacrament or an ordinance. You know, as we would with baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper, but they treat it that way. Yeah, the whole idea of you know they look at the Bible and they and we'll we'll look at these verses here later, but they think that you know there are clear biblical teachings to do this. And the and the thing is, the people in these snake handling churches, um, these are genuine people who claim to really love the Lord and their love for the Lord. And their passion for him is what really encourages them to live out that kind of, in their mind, and I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying in their mind, they think this is a way to live out their faith by picking up these uh, snakes. Right. So next question being, how prevalent is this? Uh, We've been talking about some of the worship services and, and some of the intentions behind it. How many of these folks are out there? How many churches are are there? It's hard to tell, but the estimate is today 125 churches. But, and that's covering Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Indiana. I read there is even a snake handling church in Alberta, Canada. Um, That's odd. I don't know if that's still in existence, but I've read that it did, that movement got as far uh, north as Canada. Um, What is difficult about this to know for sure is that the government now, and, and I can't remember, I think in most states it is illegal. Maybe in West Virginia it's still legal. I can't remember. You'll have to check me on that one. But it's difficult to know the number for sure and how prevalent because mountain people were clannish and private anyway. But when you start having the government to tell you what you can't do in worship service, like picking up a snake, the people who do that are going to get a lot more private and secretive. And, you know, even in the old Foxfire book, that section on snake handling churches, the author has a little note in there that they had to basically stay quiet and not tell the location or the name of that church because and that, and that book was written many years ago. So, I think the prevalence, it's estimated again, 125 churches still in existence today that handle uh, handle snakes, but it's really hard to know for sure just because of the privacy. And if you look up uh, snake handling churches and services on YouTube, um, like we've done just uh, in preparation for the episode, uh, only a few uh, pastors of these churches are willing to speak. Right. Uh, there were uh, there's some news articles and some news reports from uh, some court cases in Tennessee and things like that. And only a, a select few of these pastors were even willing to speak to media. So that uh, that kind of goes along with what you're saying about the secrecy. And right. Um, so uh, how did this all get started? Where did uh, where did the idea to in a worship service in. Uh, as we mentioned, showing faith, a display of faith and, and devotion to God. How did how did taking up serpents, picking up dangerous snakes, how did that even get started? Well, um, if you think about the history of snake handling, you can actually trace it all the way back to the second century. There was a group, a subset group uh, among the Gnostics known as the Ophites. Ophites, of course, they're getting that terminology from the Greek word for serpent. Uh, they worshiped the serpent. They were known to take up snakes and 
do things very similar to what you're seeing in, you know, Appalachia churches that do that. Uh, they actually believed um, that Christ did not exist in the flesh. The Ophites actually worshiped the serpent, preferred the serpent over Christ. They also believed that, that Jesus Christ had imitated Moses's serpent's sacred power. Of course, you know the story, Numbers 21, um, where Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. J Jesus also refers to that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. And so they believe, the Ophites believe that Jesus was just simply imitating the power of that serpent. In addition to all of that, they also believe that Eve uh, believed the serpent as if the serpent was God's son. And so that's probably the earliest. But now snake handling, as far as we know it today in, in Appalachia, um, began somewhere around 1910. It's typically associated with a man by the name of George Went Hensley in southeastern Tennessee. Um, probably didn't actually start with him. Uh, historians kind of think that it started uh, just as a movement, but Hensley made it popular. Um, he was, according to the story, he read Mark 16, verses 14 through 20, which speaks of taking up serpents. Uh, and that text of scripture moved him in such a way that he saw a rattlesnake around the time he was reading the scripture, chased down the rattlesnake, caught the rattlesnake, invited his neighbors over for a worship service. They started worshiping. They pulled out that snake. He handled it, handed it to them. They handled it. And then there you go. Nobody was bitten and the movement started. And so then with his leadership, his charisma and, and other uh, factors along with that, you, you had the Pentecostal snake handling movement that began and spread all throughout Southeast United States. Hensley, by the way, was a wreck. He was an absolute mess. I think he was married four times, divorced three times. He was a known moonshiner. Um, he was uh, ordained by the Church of God. Uh, the Church of God is a denomination, which we need to do a whole episode on the Church of God because that is like a truly Appalachia denomination. It started in the far western corner of uh, Cherokee County in western North Carolina. Um, today, their headquarters is in Cleveland, Tennessee. Lee University is their college. Uh, anyway, Hensley was ordained by the Church of God. 1922, he resigned from the Church of God, citing trouble at, in the home, which again, he had plenty of trouble in his home. And then in the 1920s, also along that time, this might have also been part of the reason why he resigned. The Church of God disavowed the practice of snake handling around the same time that he resigned. Um, in the 1930s, he traveled the Southeast, uh, promoting the practice. He believed that if, if believers had the Holy Spirit within them, they should be able to handle rattlesnakes and any other number of venomous snakes. Uh, also, he taught that you should be able to drink poison. Uh, you could touch fire. You could do, which, by the way, all those things are also common in snake handling worship services. Um, he believed that snake handling was a test or a demonstration of faith. And so he traveled all over uh, the southeast, all over Appalachia. Um, eventually, a young follower of his teachings named Raymond Hayes and Hensley together started a church in 1945 called the Dolly Pond Church of God with signs following. Um, and then that kind of started like a denomination uh, known as the Church of God with signs following. Hensley claimed to have been bitten 446 times during his life, but in July 1955, 
uh, that 447th got him in a worship service. He was bitten by a snake in Florida and he died. Uh, but again, his movement is typically called the Church of God with signs following. Also, you had another movement known as the Church of the Lord Jesus with signs following. Um, in Alabama and North Georgia, a man by the name of James Miller started this movement. There is no record of these two men knowing about each other at the time. They just both kind of started handling snakes around the same time. Two separate movements in two separate areas of Appalachia. Uh, the difference is, and I find this interesting, Hensley's ministry focused on the Trinity. He was Trinitarian, right? And so did his movement, the Church of God with signs following. They believe the Trinity, whereas Miller's movement rejects the Trinity. And the movement most commonly known today with church handling, or when, I'm sorry, with snake handling churches would be Hensley's movement, um, Miller's movement moved further north, and that's probably how snake handling got into the area of Canada. Uh, but that's the history. That's where we are now. Uh, like I said, it, we're really not sure who it started with, but Hensley's the guy that, that made it popular. So I guess we could ask a lot of questions just out of the history of that, but um, the first one that comes to mind is how does how does this kind of a worship service or how does this kind of a, uh, a church service, how does this gain traction to where it uh, spreads, like you mentioned, all the way as far north even to Canada? How does it how does it gain popularity like this when it's so uh, seemingly out there, so dangerous, this kind of thing? How does it even... I think American Christians, and this is not just Appalachia, I think just American Christians abroad are really quick to jump on fads little movements, little fads, anything that they think can move Christians, evangelical Christians, anything we think that can move us closer to the Lord or move us with passion and emotion, we're drawn to that. And that's not always good. And I think a little group like this, when it pokes up a movement like this, it appeals to the emotions and, and certainly appeals to the flesh. I think some Christians really want that mystical ecstatic moment and they think that's bringing them closer to the lord i imagine there's a, a fairly decent adrenaline rush after you've handled a venomous serpent and, i'm sure um so so you think it's it's sort of the christian or the person wanting to feel some kind of emotional connection in their worship rather than just uh uh, what you know, our typical services, we're going to put a lot of emphasis on the Bible. We're going to, it's more like a, um, we are learning. We gather together to learn and to, uh, to orient our lives according to the authority that's, that is the word of God. Right. Uh, I will admit our services are not very emotional. Uh, what do you think it is about emotions that, that drives people to seek out things like this? Uh, again, I, I just think it tantalizes the flesh. And, and also, I believe it goes back to our understanding of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, it's certainly a wrong, wrong interpretation. I mean, let's just consider one of the verses, one of the texts they use, Mark 16, uh, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Verse 18 says they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
uh, people that pick up snakes in their worship services, they think they're practicing what the Bible says. Uh, they also reference, you know, Acts when the Apostle Paul, Acts 28, when he's bitten but still lives. Uh, they think they're following out that apostolic uh, ministry and living out their faith that way. So it's certainly a wrong interpretation of the Bible, but it's, it's uh, the question, you know, has to be asked, why would you do this? Is the word of God not enough for you? You know, you can ask that question for a lot of things, right? But, but especially in this situation, why do you need that experience? Why do you need to pick up a snake? So I don't know. We're, we're drawn to that, I believe, as, as humans to, to that type of emotional experience. And so maybe that's what, it, and again, I think these people are sincere. I think they're genuine. I think they really do in their way, think they love the Lord, but they're they're missing the mark on this there seems to be more downside than upside uh especially uh you mentioned he was bitten hundreds of times and finally succumbed to uh, to his injuries and died from it um they they you've mentioned that they firmly believe uh, in their interpretation of scripture can you tell us why their interpretation of scripture is incorrect the you know it says that they will take up serpents and not be bitten and they will be able to drink venomous poison. Tell us why we shouldn't do that. Why does what, why is the Bible, uh, why is it there? And it's not, but it's not prescribing us to do that. Well, yeah, let me, let me just give you reasons and, and reasons to reject snake handling. All right. Let's just do that. I think number one, let's just go with the text in Mark 16, uh, for our listeners, if you are not aware, Mark 16 verses nine through 20, is not a part of Mark's original autograph. In other words, when John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark in the older Greek manuscripts that we have, it ends at verse 8. And there are a lot of early church theologians, early church fathers, who did not recognize verses 9 through 20, never referred to that at all. And so uh, it's not in the older manuscripts. It leads us to believe that perhaps that text is not supposed to be there. And so, you know, we don't have the time to discuss uh, biblical translation and, and all of that sorts of interpretation, all that. But I would start there and say what they are doing is something that you don't even find in many older Greek manuscripts. But let's just say it is there. Let's just say that's fine. Um, I would move on to my other reason. It's you find no commands in the New Testament and no practice in the early church. Um, let's just say that Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 was inspired by God, is supposed to be there. It's still not a command. It's just saying what the apostles were going to do. It's basically just a summary of what happens with many of the apostles in the book of Acts. So we're never commanded to take up snakes like that. We're never commanded to introduce that to our worship services. And you don't find anywhere in the book of Acts, you don't find Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and saying, men of Israel, listen to me. What you're seeing now, the spirit of God's moving. So, hey, let's go grab us some snakes and start carrying those and dancing and running. You don't find that anywhere. You never find Paul talking about that in his letters to the churches. You never, you just don't find it. So it's not commanded. It's not practiced. Thirdly, I would reject snake handling because uh, of the intent of biblical writers, that their intent is not to always command, but to report. You know, it's the old saying in, in hermeneutics, not everything described is prescribed. Just because they describe the Apostle Paul getting bit by a snake does not mean 
that that is prescribed. That's not, again, a command for us to do. Um, so not everything described is prescribed. And then fourthly, you know, we shouldn't tempt or test God. Um, live out your faith in the way the Bible definitely tells you to live it out, in love and obedience to Christ. Don't pick up snakes and say, God, here you, here you go. I'm going to put you to the test. Am I really, do I really have faith? So let this thing bite me or not. I mean, don't, don't test and tempt God. That's one of the first passages that came to my mind because it immediately made me think of uh, Satan's temptation to Jesus. Throw yourself off the point of the, the, the pinnacle of the temple and uh, the angels will protect you. They won't let you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus didn't say, no, God won't protect me or you know, he didn't, he didn't even respond to that. Uh, he just simply said, don't put God to the test. So if, if our Lord was not willing to do something to display faith and prove that God would do something through uh, an outward show of his faith, um, it, it just led me to think, uh, I'm not going to, to do something like this that would put God to the test. And right. So that was me. That was the first, uh, the first thing that I that came to my mind. Secondly, was uh, Paul was emphatic about worship services to be ordered for there not to be uh, stirred up and ecstatic. Um, I think he uses uh, ecstasy as a word of people worked up in such right. a frenzy in yeah. worship services. Mm -hmm. When I was watching some of those YouTube videos. On some of these churches, that's what it seems. It seems like an ecstatic. They seem to be almost, almost out of their mind kind of thing when they're they're dancing to this music. They've got music playing or people singing, and they're almost they almost appear hypnotic. Right. Um, so those were the, the the confusion. Yeah, where where's the order? Uh, you're right. First Corinthians fourteen. Paul makes it very clear God's not the author of confusion, and he's talking about that in the context of a worship service. To me, what I have seen, what I've read, it seems entirely just confusing. And also, uh, if perfect love casts out fear, uh, I would be quite fearful. That's right. In a yeah. service like this, I will admit, yeah. I will readily admit, one of my biggest fears is snakes. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I would be quite fearful. I don't think that I would be... Uh, comfortable at all and and to me i think it's anti-gospel i mean one one thing we know is the bible is very clear and the gospel is clear that god's son the lord jesus has crushed the head of the serpent right right he has crushed the head of the serpent which means the enemy has been defeated why would you want to pick up something like that right why christ has offered life we can worship him in spirit and in truth exalting him who's the king of kings why would we ever want to do something that adds to the gospel? Why would you ever want to do something that you do not find clearly taught and commanded in scripture? There are plenty of other ways the Bible is abundantly clear on, you know, as far as following the Lord and expressing our love and devotion for him. So again, I think it goes back to really the authority and sufficiency of scripture, which many things goes back to the authority and sufficiency of scripture. And it seems that the evidence of our faith, second um, Peter chapter one, uh, or the fruits of the Spirit, the evidence of our faith is not that we would be able to do these outwards, outward signs and, and things like that. Our ev the evidence of our faith in the New Testament is more uh, internal devotion to God, spiritual maturity, growth, and sanctification through the Holy Spirit in your life. 
leading you and drawing you closer to God. That's right. And as far as the worship goes to in that setting, uh, let the pastor open up the word of God and expound upon it. Don't let him pick up a snake. Amen. Amen. All right. Anything else to add? No, I'm good. Thank everybody for listening today. Uh, Tune in next time. We'd like to thank you for listening to Biblical Appalachia. If you'd like to hear more content like this in the future, we would encourage you to give us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on our Facebook page, Biblical Appalachia. Thank you. Mm -hmm.